2: You know, it's a modest decision if they say, well, all we're going to do is say states can't enforce Section 3 against presidential candidates, not anybody else. And hey, Congress could pass a law, and then you could enforce it against presidential candidates someday. Uh, And we're not ruling on all of the more controversial stuff. I'm
0: Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 9th, 2024. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, the case in which the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that former President Donald Trump is disqualified from future office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and thus cannot appear on the presidential ballot. This week's Trump's Trials and Tribulations which we're airing today because it's so timely, was recorded in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. I sat down in the Virtual Jungle Studio with Lawfare senior editors Roger Parloff and Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare legal fellow and courts correspondent Anna Bauer, and Gerard Magliocca, a law professor at Indiana University and an expert on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to talk about the oral arguments, how the justices may rule, and the implications of the arguments. We also checked in on the other Trump trials, you know, the ones in Fulton County, the Southern District of Florida, and Washington DC to see what's new, and of course, We took audience questions from Lawfare material supporters on Zoom. You should become one of those. It's the Lawfare podcast, February 9th, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, the Oral Arguments in the Trump Disqualification Case. Gerard, get us started. You came into town as the the world's expert on Section 3 to watch the argument. Uh, what are your uh, impressions of the justices um, uh, handling of the matter?
2: Well, I think well, first, I'm, I'm glad to be here and, and live and live and in studio, as, as they used to say. Um, so I think that Justice Barrett had the best grasp of the case in terms of the questioning. Uh, she seemed very much on top of things. And I think a couple of the others, less so, frankly. Uh, But that said, I mean, it, it quickly became apparent that there was a wide concern about the question of letting each state kind of judge whether someone was an insurrectionist or not, at least as with respect to a presidential candidate and the various practical problems that that flow from that. Now, I think a lot of those concerns were valid. The question is, though, whether that's a constitutional objection or just a reason to have a federal statute because sometimes we like to have federal statutes instead of having states do things right. And and that part I didn't think was really kind of articulated well, at least in the questioning. And maybe the opinion will do, do a little better job of that because it's one thing to say it's better to have an act of Congress regulating something. It's another thing to say it's a constitutional requirement. So that said, I, I think that it was pretty clear during Mr. Mitchell's presentation at a certain point that, okay, they're-, they're... And
0: Mitchell, just to be clear, was the attorney for, uh, for Trump here, right?
2: Yes, right. That is, he wasn't getting very many hostile questions, and he wasn't getting any questions about whether, in fact, an insurrection had occurred or Trump had engaged in one. So it became pretty clear even before the other side got up to argue that the, this wasn't really going to go anywhere. Now, I, I can't say that's unexpected. Uh, And, you know, sometimes the opinion might be more satisfying than what you see in the actual questioning, which is a bit more of a thought experiment sometimes. But uh, so overall, not unexpected, but I would tend to think we're going to get eight or nine votes to reverse on the ground that states cannot enforce Section three against presidential candidates.
0: Roger, you were in the room as well. What did you make of it?
3: Yeah, it was a pretty uh, grueling, grueling event. Um, Let me just mention that Gerard was also not just a scholar in this area. He was a witness. He was a witness below. Uh, I should have mentioned
0: that. Yes. Although he was I want to point out he was not the witness that Justice Alito singled out that a different court might have. Uh, interpreted under Daubert as as potentially unqualified to give witness testimony. No justice raised a question about the uh, appropriateness of the lower court having heard from Gerard.
3: No, no. I was surprised about a lot of things, which might be a polite way of saying I was wrong about a lot of things uh, in my (laughs) predictions my expectations. But uh, I was very surprised about the centrality of the argument that uh, section three talks about holding office, and he's only running for office, uh, and the enormous consequences that that is apparently going to have. I always thought that was one of the weaker arguments. uh, And it put things off. But I, the direction they seem to be going is I. The second thing that leads into the second thing I was surprised about that uh, Thornton versus U.S. term limits is, turns out to be a very crucial case. I, I, at least uh this is the direction a lot of people seem to be going in that's the one that said and and I I haven't read it recently maybe I've never read it okay uh but I, it's uh it's um the, the uh, state was trying to uh impose term limits on its federal officers and that was found to be unconstitutional and so uh what they're saying here is that it, this is because the uh section three only bars you from holding office not from running from office running for office um the state is uh imposing an extra uh requirement it's accelerating that uh requirement um that you, and and that's possible to argue because there's this unique aspect of uh disqualification under section three which is that two-thirds of uh both houses of Congress can lift the disqualification. So that makes it different from the age disqualification. If you're, you know, 16 years old or, you know, if you haven't, if you're not a natural born citizen, this is something Congress can lift. Maybe they can lift it when you're elected. Um, And and so they're treating that as a very, very uh, different thing from all other qualifications. I hadn't expected that. I also hadn't expected that uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson would be very, very sold on the idea, more sold than uh, even uh, Jonathan Mitchell, that um, the uh, presidency, not, not not the president, but the presidency is not one of the offices from which you are barred um, uh, by Section 3. Uh, and she had some historical reasons for that. And uh, and that leads to the next thing that surprised me was just how incredibly candid um, Jonathan Mitchell was. This this is Trump's lawyer. He was he was very good. But uh, he he said the silent part out loud often. And, and he told Ketanji Brown Jackson, well, you know, that argument is a heavier lift. Yeah, we that don't was a, abandon- that's one of
0: the weaker arguments we've yeah, got. I, yeah,
3: I have to say, I found it. <laughs> It's Sherman, so refreshing
0: that, yeah, that an oral advocate before the Supreme Court just acknowledged where his arguments were weak. And um, and I thought it's uh, it. You know, I have very seldom seen uh, an advocate. We're used to blasting Trump's lawyers. Yeah. Um, uh, and so you're know, like, when one does a great job, let's acknowledge it. Uh, I have very seldom seen a supreme court advocate with better rapport yeah. with the justices than Jonathan Mitchell showed
3: today. Yeah and and like uh, Jackson would say well but I because I, I historically I don't think they were really focused on the issue of uh, uh, an insurrectionist becoming president, and uh, Mitchell said, "Well, actually, there is some evidence <laughs> that they were very concerned about Jefferson Davis becoming president." You know, and he would just say, "Yeah, we didn't make that argument because we thought it would boomerang on us because there's some evidence on the other side."
0: I thought it, you know, it's it's like I, I'm glad you raised it. I was going to mention it toward the end, but I actually think it's it's just. You know, it's taking the officer of the court role seriously in a way that I really admire. And he's there advocating for his client. He did a really good job advocating for his client. He's going to win. But He also takes the time to say, look, I don't want to emphasize this point because then my counsel over there will turn around and boomerang that on me. I'd rather you hear this from me. But actually, you know, they were pretty concerned about Jefferson Davis. Um, And I, I just... I think there's a, a lot of Supreme Court advocates have a lot to learn from, from that kind of candor with the tribunal. It's not something Trump's lawyers are normally known for, uh, but this guy's in a different league than a lot of people who've represented uh, President Trump. Quinta, uh, you were not in the room, but you uh, uh, listened to the argument, as did uh, Anna and I. What were your impressions?
4: Well, as Ben has been hearing me r- just wandering around the office ranting with steam coming out of my ears over the last um, few hours, I-, I confess I was surprised by how irate I was. I really, I mean, look, this was a hard case. It was always going to be a reach um, for the petitioners here to get a-, a ruling on disqualification. I was nevertheless surprised by how how the justices seem to have really made up their minds going in um, and were sort of very obviously, to my mind, uh, casting about looking for potential exit ramps, um, including exit ramps that were quite convoluted and that, um, and people should correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think had been raised previously, such as this kind of weird Griffin's case, federal interest argument about why states shouldn't be allowed to uh, make a call on disqualification without um, Congress weighing in. I certainly hadn't seen that um, feature prominently, at least in in the briefing. And I was surprised by how I wasn't expecting uh, the question of whether January 6th was an insurrection or whether Trump engaged in it to really take center stage because it's a, it's a bad argument for Trump maybe we could uh hope for charming mr jonathan mitchell to admit as much but it i was nevertheless kind of surprised that how little it it featured um so it took i counted uh 53 minutes before anyone raised the question of uh, whether or not January 6th was an insurrection. Uh, Mitchell said that it it was not, although he said it was shameful and violent. Um, And it kind of didn't feature throughout the rest of oral argument. The justices were really focused on what I would argue are kind of ancillary concerns about, you know, what is an officer? Um, Is Section 3 self-executing? So on and and so forth. To the extent that there is this note of kind of almost like, befuddlement and irritation from Roberts, um, I think at about an hour and a half in where he's, he's responding to counsel for petitioners, Jason Murphy, and sort of says, um, or respondents, excuse me, um, saying, uh, you know, well, what, what are we supposed to do? You know, if you have States that are coming to different decisions based on whether or not, uh, the president, a presidential candidate is disqualified, what if there are competing rulings? I mean, do you expect us to weigh in? Um, am I supposed to weigh in on, on what an insurrection is? Uh, to which my response is, yes, that's what this case is. Uh, but there just really seemed to be a desire on the part of the justices to not look in the eye of what this case is about. And I think you also see that in a, in the off-ramp that they seem to be coalescing around, this, this sort of argument that uh, states can't take this action without some kind of uh, congressional Go ahead. Because my my worry here is that if the justices do not rule on the merits, that then what ends up happening is you essentially are just tossing the hot potato to Congress on January 6th, 2025. Um, because then you've passed it back to Congress, um, the the entity that you said should have acted in the first place. Now, if if Trump wins the election, they're going to have to decide what do we do with the counting of the electoral vote with someone who may be disqualified. Um, and I I don't know what you do in that situation. And I think that they are really underplaying the likelihood that this ends in chaos and further violence. Um, and I think that you see also this sort of. Real pushing away of what January sixth was and what happened um, in some of the arguments that uh, that were made. Um, I believe this was Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Uh, sort of had these hypotheticals about, oh, you know, what if states start disqualifying presidential candidates for this and that, you know, maybe someone thinks that something else is an insurrection. Um, I think that, that that really plays down just how dire January 6 was, just how unprecedented it was, just how frightening and violent it was. And there there's a level of sort of retreating into the weeds to not have to acknowledge the gravity of the case before them. This doesn't mean that these questions aren't important, but I do think taking taking a step back, I was really struck by how much the court just really seemed to not want to be left holding the hot potato.
0: All right. I want to bring a bunch of these questions back to Gerard. Um, and let's start with the fact that, uh, as best as I can tell, you do not have... St- Quinta Jurassic-like steam coming out of your ears. Uh, and yet this subject is, you know, the thing that made you uh, uh, like a famous, uh, not quite household name, but, uh, you know, about as close to a household name as uh, 19th century historian law professors get. So uh, why are you, are, are you just more mild-mannered than Quinta? Or is there some reason why you're kind of chill about the whole thing?
2: Well, it, it could be that I'm more mild mattered. I don't know. I only just met Quinta just now, but, uh, but the other thing is, look, you have the, there's the hat of being a participant and then there's the hat of being the observer, right? So now I'm wearing my observer hat because I was just sitting there observing today. And so from that point of view, It's not surprising to me that this would be their response uh, or way of looking at it. Look, it's kind of like a version of Pennywise Pound Foolish. You know, it's a modest decision if they say, well, all we're going to do is say states can't enforce Section 3 against presidential candidates, not anybody else. And, hey, Congress could pass a law and then you could enforce it against presidential candidates someday. Uh, and we're not ruling on all of the more controversial stuff that would get people all worked up, right? So isn't that great? But the the problem is you're, you're taking a big chance because, of course, if Trump were to lose, right, then the issue goes away and they look smart or wise or whatever. Uh, but if he wins, then uh, the gamble didn't pay off. And then we are in the circumstance where People will go to Congress and, and will say, look, they didn't say he was eligible. They just said states couldn't enforce it. Well, you're not a state. You're Congress. So now you should decide whether he's eligible or not. Now, obviously, that's different than having a court look at it. It's Congress, it's the new Congress, whatever that looks like. But OK, that's not a judicial process or much of any process, really. And. That's going to create a lot of uncomfortable moments, if you want to put it that way, between November and January in the event that uh, Trump wins. Uh, And it's very ironic that we could find ourselves back in in a, a different January 6th problem four years after the previous one. So I think that's a mistake. But I can understand why they might make that mistake because they're thinking, okay, we want to avoid talking about something that's going to cause a problem now, in the hopes that there won't be this problem later. Now you could say that everybody just keeps kicking a can. You know, so Senate Republicans voted Trump not guilty. Well, next election, that's far away, and hey, maybe We won't have to deal with it. okay? now, well, okay. let's see. Maybe we won't have to deal with it again because he won't win in November. Well, maybe. Uh, But if not, I don't know what the plan B is.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that, because
2: one way to think
0: about this is that the Supreme Court's exercising the passive virtues. You know, you don't need to reach this question yet. Congress hasn't acted, defer to the political branches, blah, blah, blah. But another way to say it is that these are passive vices, actually. And, you know, what you're actually doing is you're setting up a confrontation in the wake of an election when the guy has won, apparently. And then you have to have uh, the fight in a way that's much more acute than during the nominating process. I'm curious, y- you said earlier that you thought the justice whose questions were most thoughtful and who really seemed to understand this best was was uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I'm curious for your uh, for an explication of that a little bit, is w- what about her approach uh, seemed uh, more, more sensible to you? And was it was it responsive to this concern in some respect?
2: Well, what I meant was that I think her questions reflected a a stronger grasp on the materials in the case. For example, she understood what Griffin's case was and wasn't rather than Justice Kavanaugh's sort of Mm. kind of superficial statement that, oh, well, it's just great. And it's been everybody thought it was great for 150 years kind of thing. Uh, Second is she did point out that, look, there are some situations where the Constitution says that states are disabled from acting. And she referenced cases about state habeas corpus, for example, that cannot be applied to federal uh, prisoners. And so, okay, yeah, sometimes we think there's a structural reason and to say states can't act unless Congress does something or states can't act, period. And okay, maybe that makes sense. She also didn't seem very interested in the officer issue because she kind of just said in passing, "Okay, assume I don't agree with you on that. Let's go talk about this other thing. So, I mean, I I think all of that is there. And I think it also suits what seems to me her approach, which is a little more incremental and cautious about things generally and that this is sort of a, a kind of home for that. Um, Now, that doesn't mean I agree, but I mean, just means that I thought she she her questions were much more precise than some of the others who were either not talking much in reference to the historical record at all or were uh, just seem to be sort of missing the point sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised how many of them were talking about the historical record incorrectly like starting with Katanji Brown Jackson, who really seemed to believe that the entire animating feature of Section 3 is kind of state politics and that high national politics really didn't enter into it, which does not seem to me to be consistent with the legislative record at all.
2: Right. Well, if you say, was the primary concern that people had about people taking office either in the Confederacy or Confederates being sent to Congress. Yes, that was the primary concern because obviously they were trying to reconstruct the South. But to say then that, that well, that was the only concern, right? That's something else entirely. And so, uh, yeah, that that line of questioning I found kind of uh, not, d- didn't do much for me.
4: So when one, one point on the role of history, I was really struck there is a, you know, we're talking a lot about history here. There were a number of briefs by very prominent historians. I was really struck by a moment when uh, uh, Justice Thomas referenced the the work of two professional historians in one breath: uh, one, Eric Foner; the other, Shelby Foote. Putting those on people on the same. In the same sentence, I think is is pretty striking and said a lot to me about the the role that history was playing here. So for those who aren't familiar, uh Foner is sort of a preeminent historian of reconstruction. He literally wrote the book on it. It's very long. Um, and did uh write immediately after January 6th, arguing for uh, disqualification under the 14th Amendment, actually. Um, foot, I think it's fair to say, is someone who's more associated with what's now called the the Dunning School of Civil War History, something that sort of tends toward a kind of lost cause uh, mythology um, and is kinder toward the South and is also someone whose work has been criticized uh, quite a bit recently by academic historians as not particularly accurate. So I did... Find that striking um, that though, you know, insofar as historians were mentioned, those were the two historians, and they were kind of put on the same level, which I think was telling in terms of how the court is thinking about the role of history and what history it's thinking about.
3: One striking thing about the briefing, and, and fortunately I think it was clarified here, but there were several briefs that were predicated on a false and and sort of glaringly false factual scenario. The original respondent's brief, I believe, but I'm certain, the brief for Meese, Attorney General Meese, Mukasey, Barr, and a couple professors said that the federal uh, criminal statute against insurrection, which is now at uh, 18 U.S.C. 2383, was enacted as part of the Enforcement Act of 1870. And it wasn't, you know, it was enacted in 1862. It was enacted before Section 3 was drafted and before it was uh, ratified. And so uh, they had, and they went on for pages about, uh, so, you know, this is uh, part of the Enforcement Act and we're bound by, you know, Uh, What we're seeing now is uh, uh, the word seems to have gotten out that uh, and and in oral argument, uh, Jason Murray for the uh, respondents did uh, make this clear. But I think they're still going to be trying to use 18 U.S.C. 2383 as some sort of safety valve. Like it's not like there's no recourse. If a president commits an insurrection, you can indict him. Under uh, this uh, law, and trump hasn't been indicted, there has been some very bad law uh, bandied about and and bad history
0: so before we move on from section three and into uh, other trump trials and tribulations i'm I'm curious Gerard, where this leaves us, assuming that we have some Since no justice reflected any interest in the merits of the question, is Trump in fact disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? I assume we are going to get some kind of opinion that is predicated on the absence of Congress implementing this in some uh, uh, more direct sense than 2383. Uh, and allowing permitting states to disqu- uh, to implement through their own election laws uh, and ballot access procedures, the disqualification. And so if you end up with a ruling, and we talked about this a little bit before, but I, I just kind of want you to walk us through this. If you end up with a ruling that says Colorado can't do this, but doesn't say what Section 3 means or how you might apply it to the facts of the January 6th insurrection, and maybe doesn't answer the question, does it apply to Donald Trump or does it apply to the presidency? What then happens with Section 3 uh, and the 2024 election?
2: Well, first, you might get a couple of separate opinions that would at least try to fill in some of those gaps or at least express a view on one or more of those matters. That's there's some possibility of that. Or there's some possibility of one dissent, I guess. So can't say definitely it would be unanimous in result, though probably it will be. The answer is maybe nothing because, again, Trump might lose, right? The trouble is, okay, if he wins and especially if he wins after he's been convicted of something then a lot of people and
0: let's 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 make it hard let's say he wins after being convicted of the four count indictment in connection with the January 6th case which charges him with all kinds of facts that a reasonable person might say Uh, Boy, that looks like an insurrection, but is not charged under the relevant statute is charged under fraud against the United States and conspiracy to, you know, impede a government process and and uh, conspiracy against rights. So you've been charged and convicted of facts that you might infer are insurrectionary, but the government chose to call it something else. What happens?
2: Right. Well, depending on how the opinion is written, it's possible that in that event, even at the point of conviction, somebody might try to run in somewhere and say, well, okay, now you have a federal conviction. So maybe that counts as what you need to do a disqualification. Okay, but more likely, it's that people are just going to say Congress should not seat him. That in effect they should they should exclude him from the presidency. And but what does that actually look like? A lot of protests. Going to Capitol Hill to say, you know, don't don't seat him because he's disqualified. And that could get really ugly. And and that's probably where we're headed if if he wins. Because even if he's not convicted, I mean it, people might still do that, but they probably it, the, the likelihood of that is even is greater if he is convicted on those charges.
0: So, Roger, I meant to ask you this earlier, but I didn't. Um, are you do you uh, share uh, Quinta's steam coming out of your ears, irritation at this argument? Or are you more in observer mode what happened happened and and um the justices did not approach it from the point of view that you expected but
3: while i was there it it was grueling you know it's like uh you know watching uh, your team lose 45 to 3 in the super bowl you know <laughs> not to tip my hand too much and when nobody is speaking out anymore none of the justices uh it's just sort of a punching bag you know that that part is hard it was a very consequentialist argument and you have to say you know that was my initial reaction to this whole thing back in 2000 you know 21 when i started looking into this stuff was exactly all of this uh that how is this going to work really and and of course the thing we tossed around here sometimes is what exactly happens if if the colorado court is affirmed does it what do the other states do and and you know we thought well maybe they all fall in line or maybe maybe you know the, the supreme court can say well he's disqualified and have, and no they didn't think so they they said no, all we do is review for clear error. And uh, so all the other j- courts would continue to litigate this with various outcomes and it would be a disaster. And, you know, you know, I, I, I can see that. So um, I guess I've calmed down uh, and, and maybe I'm, I'm more at the uh Gerard end of the spectrum than the Quinta end of the spectrum emotionally to, to begin with. But uh, yeah, I, I actually, I, I would like to say, I, I, I you know, Kavanaugh gave us a fairly clear picture of what he's going to write. And we, yes, you know, he, was,
0: he was quite transparent about yeah. where he's heading.
3: And, uh, and this, again, goes to Quinta's false history theory. Uh, he's going to say... They ratified uh, the amendment in 1868. And then the next year, Chief Justice Chase, in Griffin's case, not as a Supreme Court case, makes this ruling. Uh, And then 1870, Congress responds to the ruling. Uh, And he's also going to say that Chief Justice Chase's ruling that that you needed, Congress needed to uh, enforce this, tells us what the original public meaning probably was because here you have a chief justice and he's a contemporary and of course we know it's not true because uh, you know he wrote the Jeff- the Jefferson Davis case 6 months earlier but anyway that will be part of it and then and then the 1870 law the Enact- enforcement act lasts until 1948 on the books so apparently and Gerard can explain this there's something, there's a theory called liquidation that uh, Madison brought up in Federalist 37. It's this idea that you may have a something unclear in the Constitution or in a statute, and then in practice, it becomes clear what it means. So this is how they're going to put that together and, and uh, say that uh, Congress has to enact something. But how we get out of the, uh, you know, what the... Uh, exit ramp is, if we need one on January 6th, 2025, is still an open question.
0: Well, I'm sure that the ever-effective United States Congress will respond to this oral argument by saying, look, the Supreme Court is implying we need implementing legislation. Let's craft a a careful process uh, to evaluate Uh, state ballot access or to authorize states to control ballot access on the basis of section three, subject to the following due process rules. And clearly that's uh, uh, how a reasonable Congress and therefore our Congress would respond to this oral argument. Okay, we're going to shift gears and turn to the other Trump trials and tribulations because, you know there's never just one. Uh, And uh, the ever patient Anna Bauer has been sitting here just waiting because we're going to go from the hallowed halls of the Supreme Court of the United States straight to divorce court in Cobb County. And we're barely going to even pause for a tawdry moment in, in Fulton County. Anna Bauer, since we last talked, uh, the estimable fanny Willis, has finally responded to that uh, uh, motion for her disqualification. If I do say so myself, the power of her response amply justifies our reticence about discussing the matter uh, in great depth before it. So what does she have to say? And uh, does this put the whole let's say, La Fair Fulton County to rest.
5: Right. So Fannie Willis did respond on Friday, uh, and her response, as as you noted, Ben, was quite forceful. Uh, She disputed some of the facts that were made in Mike Roman's original motion for her disqualification, for example, she, although she admitted that she did develop a personal relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade, she says that it did not begin until 2022, which would have been after he was hired as Special Prosecutor. Uh, along with that response, there was also an affidavit that was filed by Nathan Wade in which uh, a number of uh, uh, statements were made by Nathan Wade in which he said, We've never shared uh, income. We have never cohabitated. And any of our expenses on personal vacations have, have roughly been split. They did also include at least one example of Fonnie Willis purchasing, you know, a plane ticket for Nathan Wade. Whereas previously, there had only been evidence to show that Nathan Wade bought tickets for Fonnie Willis. So that was apparently to support the claim that uh, they, they had split their personal travel expenses. But more notably was the, the way that the district attorney responded in her legal argument. Uh, You know, she makes a lot of compelling arguments that uh, Georgia courts have been uh, have have said that there is no kind of categorical disqualification based on a romantic relationship. Uh, And then, you know, that there is no argument here for based on what has been presented thus far, that uh, there's disqualification based on a financial interest. Uh, because there is no, you know, demonstrated interest in Mike Roman's conviction or the conviction of any of these uh, other individuals who have been indicted, including Trump. Uh, So I think that it was a strong response, although, I I mean, I will say that, you know, much of it comes down to the truth of the uh, representations that it, that were made by Nathan Wade and the district attorney in that response. Uh, I, I think that, you know, it, there was this, this reply by Mike Roman. In my view, there, there were, there were a lot, there was a lot of things about that reply that I thought thought were quite um, at the very least distasteful, but it relied on a lot of innuendo. But the the gist of it was basically that, you know, there are disputed questions of fact. Um, Mike Roman has has alleged that the relationship between Nathan Wade and Vonnie Willis began before uh, he was hired as special prosecutor, And then Mike Roman has subpoenaed a number of people to testify at this hearing on February 15th, including Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis uh, and a number of people who work in their office. Then just yesterday, we got a motion to quash from Bonnie Willis and her office. Uh, They are seeking to quash a number of subpoenas that were sent out by Mike Roman's team. Uh, And then earlier this afternoon, there was also a separate motion to quash from Nathan Wade. He is seeking to quash subpoenas for documents to one of his personal bank accounts, and then also for financial records to his law firm. Uh, and the, the gist of the legal argument there is basically that these are you know overbroad and, and oppressive and kind of uh subpoenas that were issued to to simply harass as opposed to, you know, based in any kind of you know reasonable search for you know proving up uh evidence. That they I believe Nathan Wade in one of these. Documents calls it a fishing expedition, so it's it's to be seen what Judge McAfee will do with respect back to quashing those subpoenas. He has even indicated, you know, for defense counsel to make arguments in their reply brief as to why a hearing should still be held. As I already said, uh, Ashley Merchant, on beh- behalf of Mike Roman, did make such an argument. And it's expected that we'll see some more reply briefs from other defense counsel and then further reply from Mike Roman. But we have this February 15th hearing. And I think the big question is just. What will Judge McAfee do to kind of keep that hearing from turning into a circus? Because it seems at the moment he's going to have a very difficult task, kind of reeling everything in and keeping it, uh, you know, from turning into a show as opposed to an evidentiary hearing in which uh, the defendants have their arguments heard. Uh, and then also the district attorney is is still um, able to, you know, uh, not just have this become a
1: spectacle. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All right,
0: so uh, I want to argue Fonnie uh, Willis's side of this for a second with respect to the answer to that question. I'm uh, I, let me lay my cards on the table, which Anna knows, but you all don't. I am irate about, in light of her response to this uh, set of motions from Mike Roman and that have been joined by Trump. Um, I am a little bit shocked and uh, kind of angry that these motions were filed in the first place without a better factual record. And it actually seems uh, like wildly inappropriate to me. So that those are my biases. But it seems to me what you've got right now in terms of record evidence on the one side is the suggestion acknowledged that they that Fonny Willis and Nathan Wade had an affair, an allegation that they started that affair in 2019 that he in sworn testimony disputes um, and a sort of innuendo that he's lying with no record evidence supporting it. And you have a series of claims, none of them supported about uh, him Uh, like basically a kickback scheme um, between her and him that the, the sum total of evidence of which is that he paid for some trips that she went on. Although she also apparently paid for some trips that he went on. And so the record evidence establishes only that there is a workplace romance in which they pay for each other's trips. I don't understand how any of this supports subpoenas to anybody in the absence of something more than Ashley Merchant's innuendo that he's lying. If he's lying, he should be prosecuted, and it's not just a matter you know. Then you have a different matter if 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 she has evidence that he's lying. But right now, I don't understand how there's a factual record for Judge McAfee, Boy Wonder McAfee, to do anything other than say you haven't established the factual predicate for any component of this motion, unless you're merely trying to expose the fact that they have an affair. So what am I missing? No. And
5: I, I, I mean, I'm in agreement with you, Ben. I, I will say, I think maybe the solution to this is, you know, there are some witnesses who have been subpoenaed who, as far as I'm aware, have not moved to quash their subpoenas, and and these are people who, you know, are potentially fact witnesses to some of these claims that have been made by Ashley Merchant uh, that would dispute the sworn testimony of Nathan Wade. And so what McAfee could do is say, um, I'm going to hold the question of whether to quash These subpoenas and you can you know, if there's these other you know, if you can make a showing for the the need for the, the, the testimony of some of these other witnesses or if you can at this evidentiary hearing prove up any of these factual predicates before, you know, the district attorney or or any of her um, individuals in her office are set to testify, then, you know, maybe it's in question. But I think that, you know, his his move would be to kind of at least let them try to establish some factual predicates before he quashes the subpoenas. The reason being that, you know, I think McAfee is a judge who, has shown that he wants defendants to feel like they are being heard, even if they don't necessarily have, uh, even if they don't really have a shot at winning the argument. And I, this isn't to say, I'm not saying that McAfee should just let any kind of, you know, frivolous argument uh, be brought before him. But I think that, you know, this is an argument that I don't think is frivolous, but it it doesn't really have a whole lot of merit as of yet. Um, but that kind of meant at least like minimal kind of argument that could be made here, I think, is the kind that McAfee is going to at least want to let the defendants feel like they've been heard and kind of he's very aware of the public perception if he does not at least have some type of evidentiary hearing. Right. What would you think of that? I mean, would you disagree that maybe that's what he, how he could approach it or or no? I mean,
0: if I were him, I would take the view that it is the, the burden is on the moving party to establish the predicate for any factual development. And so far, they haven't done it. And unless you can produce material empl- showing that the facts that he has sworn to are untrue, then the only facts that are in the record are sworn testimony from an officer of the court that your factual premise is wrong, and so I'm I would be a, a real hardliner about this unless and until there's some evidence that Nathan Wade is lying, in which case I would really come down like a ton of bricks on him. Well, we'll we'll see February fifteenth. Well, that, that's next week. Um, Uh, By this time next week, we are going to have a like a a shit show in in Fulton County to talk about. All right. Speaking of shit shows, um, um, uh, Mar-a-Lago, the slow moving, slow motion train wreck. Anna, bring us up to date and Roger bring us up to date.
5: Right, so Mar a Lago, we did we did have some Judge Cannon orders that that came down. Uh, so this is a part of this ongoing dispute over discovery. As a quick refresher, Trump had filed a motion to compel discovery. They're basically, you know, saying uh, that they have not received everything that they should. Um, they they were kind of, you know, was, they were. Comp- complaining about not uh, the breadth of discovery. They wanted it they wanted to get more information and they had a number of exhibits and documents that they filed with it. Um, but as a part of that motion, they also, you know, wanted to file certain exhibits and documents in a more unredacted form. Um, and the special counsel's office was opposed to that argument. Uh, there was also an intervention by some of the the media coalition who who did want, uh, more information unsealed or, or unredacted. So Judge Cannon kind of had to decide what to do about this. There were basically, I think it's four categories of things that the special counsel's office wanted to keep redacted or sealed. Uh, that was the code name of a separate FBI investigation, uh, some descriptions of uncharged conduct related to a, a different individual who's not been charged in in this case, and then uh, Roger, jump in if I'm missing something. And then there's also. Uh, the uh, intelligence signals uh, of of this kind of national security information that as far as I'm aware is not classified, but still sensitive information. Uh, And then the names of certain witnesses uh, in the government's case as well. Uh, And so they, you know, filed this motion asking to, you know, keep all those things uh, redacted or sealed. Judge Cannon on Tuesday said no, you have to, uh, basically disagreed on three, I believe of the areas. She did agree that there was a national security interest in, in the one, uh, area related to national security information but much of the other stuff she said no I you haven't been specific enough special counsel you know you kind of just filed this uh, opposition that really made these you know generic claims about witness uh, protection and and all of that and because you weren't specific enough, you know, I, I do think that these things should be unsealed or or unredacted. And then the special counsel in response to that order uh, just recently last night filed something saying that they intend to ask Judge Cannon to reconsider parts, at least parts of that order, uh, and that they want to file something more specific, but they they basically You know, wanted to get permission from her to file it under seal. Uh, The reason being that it includes the names of witnesses and references to a separate investigation that is ongoing in a different US attorney's office. And they revealed that that investigation deals with threats on social media to one of the witnesses in the government's case in the Mar-a-Lago case. Uh, And so that's very interesting because, you know, that filing discloses that there is this separate ongoing investigation about threats made to, to a witness in the case Uh, So that is the latest in in the kind of back and forth over this, what information will be disclosed. But I do want to just mention, Ben, because a lot of I've seen a lot of people online and and in, in media outlets kind of getting this wrong. This actually doesn't relate to the separate dispute around which I think Roger can talk about around what classified information will be provided to Trump's team. Uh, this dealt with, you know, materials or information that is sensitive, but is not uh, classified. So it, although there were some headlines saying that Judge Cannon, you know, made classified information public, that is that is uh, inaccurate. Um, so just to kind of clear the air on that. But Roger, if you want to talk about the other developments, then go for it.
3: Okay. And that's, that's exactly right, um, as far as I know. And I have seen some false, some inaccurate uh, reports there. Uh, so the, the actual SEPA proceedings, SEPA Section 4 proceedings, continue. This is uh, uh, the, has to do with information that the government thinks um, Trump's team does have uh, some sort of discovery entitlement to, but it, they, they also involve a lot of ultra-sensitive material uh, so, they want to have it redacted to take that out. And they're going through the procedures provided. And um, Trump has want, these are usually ex party. The judge meets with one side, the government sees the documents, meets with the other side alone, talks about their defenses, tries to decide what they're entitled to. Trump wants to see or to have his lawyers see the secret information, the secret motion. She hasn't decided that portion of it. So she's holding a hearing Monday, uh, February 12th, um, and uh, she'll have uh, the first, uh, the morning will be ex-party with the defendants, the afternoon ex-party with the government, and then uh, they might meet again, February 13th, the next day. Uh, if necessary and then she will apparently not decide the motion but decide uh whether to share some of this confidential inf- uh, information with trump's lawyers uh possibly also with uh the Nauda and the Oliveras. uh so that and that could be a controversial thing um so we're waiting on that the other the other thing that uh i think uh, looks a little ominous is that uh, defense, uh, the, uh, Trump's lawyers have asked for, um, th- their motions are due, uh, pre-trial motions, motions to dismiss are due February 22nd. And they're already asking, they, uh, they say they're gonna file some huge ones then, but they want another 30 days, uh, or actually uh, they, they they want an extension of deadlines so that, after the government responds to their motions to compel that they can decide whether to file still more motions. And the ones they know they're gonna file are presidential immunity. I'm not sure how that works in this context. Presidential Records Act, President uh, Trump's security clearances, the vagueness doctrine, impermissible pre-indictment delay, selective and vindictive prosecution, and then the motions he is uh considering beyond that have to do with prosecutorial misconduct, due process violations, unlawful disregard of President Trump's attorney-client privilege, the Mar-a-Lago raid, and uh, searches of defendants of electronic devices. So there is a lot of potential uh, delay-causing uh, uh, motions piling up. All
0: right, we are gonna go to audience questions. We've got a lot of them, so uh, please keep your questions uh, brief. We have for our first question today, and I'm so excited about this, Lindsay Chervinsky, who is, um, among other things, uh, she is my book author sibling because I wrote a book entitled Unmaking the Presidency, and Lindsay has a new book coming out called Making the Presidency, which is about, I believe, the Adams administration foreign policy. Is that right, Lindsay?
5: Yes, it is on John Adams, the creation of precedents and norms like the peaceful transfer of power. So hopefully it will be nice and relevant this fall. I was
0: so excited when I saw that your book was coming out because it's like the mirror image of mine. Um, And I thought that was cool. And it like bonds us forever. So you get the first question today.
5: Well, thank you so much. So I know that the mandate for the D.C. Circuit Court is going to send it back to the district court on Monday. And my understanding was that that meant that the trial calendar would re-up again unless the Supreme Court approved a stay. But I heard a lawyer on a different podcast say that the stay- I know, right? They're tricky. Say that the stay would be automatic. And so what I was curious about was, does the stay go into place until the Supreme Court decides whether or not there's a stay or does it have to be actually be granted?
0: Yeah. So here is uh, the answer to this. And then Anna Bauer is going to tell me where I get it wrong. So if, first of all, it's Tuesday, not Monday, uh, uh, the 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 stay of the mandate From the panel goes through Monday, which means the mandate will issue Tuesday unless Trump asks for, uh, Trump notifies the district, uh, the circuit court that he plans an appeal and is filing for a stay with the Supreme Court. If he does that, the stay, the existing stay, will remain in effect until the Supreme Court rules on his request for a stay. If they then grant the request for a stay, then the Supreme Court's rule ruling controls. If they don't grant the request for a stay, then the DC Circuit stay dissolves as well. Is that right, Anna?
5: That is right. And I would just like to say thank you for clarifying to everyone that the mandate, if there is no stay, uh, no automatics day through an application by Trump would issue on Tuesday, not on Monday because everyone is getting that wrong. Uh, the the mandate does not issue on February 12th. It is held through February 12th. So Trump has until Monday to file an application for. See, a stay these
0: are Supreme the things Court. you come to lawfare for, you know those other podcasts. they get you within the right week but they they get you a day that ends in day but they might give you monday instead of tuesday on lawfare on lawfare live you are going to get the right day that the stay dissolves and the mandate leaps out of the hands of the clerk of the dc circuit and flaps its way back to judge chutkin all right uh chris the floor is yours
2: thanks ben so the can has been kicked down the road by the Supremes today, it seems, and I'm wondering what are the different ways in which it might get picked up? So
3: if Congress doesn't reverse the disqualification, could there be a writ of quo warranto post-January 20th if he wins? Could there be a challenge to his first executive order on the basis that he can't hold the office and therefore
2: the order is invalid? What are some of the options post-January 20th if Trump wins?
0: Gerard! This one has your name all over it,
2: right? So first of all, there's no federal warranto for the president, and the question was raised by Justice Barrett. Again, a good question about well, even if there were, isn't is that lawful, or would that intrude on the impeachment power of Congress? Uh, so that's unclear. Will people? Try to bring challenges to, uh, say, second Trump administration actions. Yeah, probably. But they won't go anywhere. They'll, they'll just be dismissed on the ground that the joint session, if they confirm him as president and he's sworn in, then he's the president, unless some other procedure is developed to kind of remove him from office, which, uh, you know, won't happen. So, So I think uh, you might see a little bit of that kind of uh, initially, but it it will quickly be nipped in the bud because they'll just say, well, the joint session was the body that could have done something. And if they didn't do anything, then that's that.
0: All right. Julia, the floor is yours.
2: Okay. I read uh, Ian Basson's piece in Lawfare yesterday um, about Section 3. And if uh, the Supremes don't hold up don't affirm the Colorado decision, um, the
3: 22nd amendment could come into play, uh, which is the amendment that, um, I mean, down the road, which is the amendment that limits a president to two terms.
0: Can you talk that talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this actually came up at oral argument today. Um, and um, uh, I believe Justice Kagan asked about it, if memory serves. So Gerard, in case you didn't read Ian's article, he he said basically, uh, gosh, you know, imagine it's August and the Supreme Court has ignored, you know, has found that Section three is not self-executing. And, you know, the 22nd Amendment isn't obviously any more self-executing. So what if the Democrats decided Biden is a non-viable candidate? And so we should just nominate uh, Barack Obama um, and since these uh, amendments are apparently these qualification amendments are apparently non-self-executing, Congress hasn't done anything here either. And so the question is: is the is there some actual reason in the text or history of the Constitution uh, why the Twenty Second Amendment should be more judicially enforceable than the uh, than Section Three of the Fourteenth?
2: So I think they will drop a footnote in the opinion that says nothing we say here has anything to do with the other qualifications for president. And the reason they will say that is those are basically simple, objective facts. How old you are? Are you a citizen? Have you already served two terms? And those don't raise the problem of complicated determinations from state to state that could vary a lot and so on. So... In effect, yeah, states could enforce that, uh, but not Section 3. So I do think they'll say something about that because it's kind of a a fair point to make against their analysis. But they'll probably say simple versus complicated. And that's that's going to be the distinction.
0: All right. So there are rest of the questions. Well, people want me to read them today. So I'm going to read some questions Uh, Josh writes in with a string of three questions. We're going to do them in rapid fire. If you have an answer to one, just speak up. One, D.C. Circuit affirmation of Chutkin's order denying dismissal on immunity grounds. We were all asking, what's taking so long? Having read the opinion, what took so long, Quinta? Is percurium better or different than the same content written by Judge Henderson and joined in full by Childs and Pan without dissents or concurrence? I know you have thoughts on this, Q, because you and I talked about it yesterday. So, yeah,
4: so great, great question. Um, I think that the the percurium nature of the opinion is probably what took so long. Um, it's rare to have a percurium opinion at that length. Um, this is an ideologically diverse panel, Judge Sheldon-Pan are Biden appointees, Judge Henderson is a, a H.W. Bush appointee. So I think it's reasonable that, you know, it took them a month to kind of iron out all the details and put together something that they were all comfortable releasing as a curiam opinion. As to why that is different in its significance, I think it it really underlines that, you know, this is the panel speaking with one voice. Um, This is not, you know, you have a majority, you have a concurrence, maybe you have another concurrence. Uh, This is all of them underlining, you know, we are a unified front on this. Um, I think it's a it's very much a, a signal to the Supreme Court that, you know, we're certainly to the to the rest of the D.C. Circuit. Um, if if Trump does petition for rehearing on Bang and, and to the Supreme Court as well, you know, we are very confident um, in in our, our reasoning. And so. Uh, I think there is reason to argue that it may have been certain that, that they may have made the call that the additional time it took to reach that decision for curium was worth it because of the particularly strong meth- uh, message that a procurium opinion sends.
0: All right. Two. Will the review by the appeals court in the Eugene Carroll defamation case review or revise the compensatory damages? How does this relate to punitive damages, and what's the time frame? So, Roger, do you have any thoughts on this? My own sense is that the time frame for a second circuit appeal is probably about eighteen months um and maybe a little longer, and appeals courts generally knock down punitive damages a bit, although this is within the range of that the court has the high court has set. um so I would expect a lot of these damages to actually have effect Roger do you have thought you've actually practiced in that jurisdiction what uh
3: I don't know how long the appeal will take it it could take you know it, it could take a long time but um and then she's asking also about compensatory damages and it could well be she's also going to that the Trump will also disagree with uh, that some but uh, that's too granular for me as far as I, I haven't been following it that closely but yes the If the if if the compensatory damages are reduced, it could have an impact on the punitive damages, which are, you know, usually some sort of multiplication. escalation. Yeah. Multiplicative factor. You know.
0: All right. And the last uh, question from Josh um, guesses, uh, Gerard, on when the Supreme Court will decide the Section three case. How long is this going to take them?
2: Maybe by the end of the month. Early March, I would say no more than a month would be my best guess.
3: Super Tuesday is March fifth, and and Trump had asked uh, try to have this resolved by March fifth, and the whole the whole expedited schedule has been sort of aimed at achieving that goal. So I, I th- think they're still on that. That's the goal. All
0: right, Catherine asks for the conservative justices looking to deny cert or cause a delay in the trial court, is the Jack Goldsmith article on tighter language, their most attractive justification or cover story? Um, uh, So I actually don't think so. Um, uh, So I assume uh, you mean to grant cert, not deny cert. But um, So first of all, the Goldsmith article, which relates to something called the clear statement rule, I don't think it's going to help Trump. Um, Jack's concern in that article is the historic position of the Justice Department on the interaction of criminal statutes and presidential power um, and he starts the article by saying he thinks that the D.C. Circuit is right on the merits and the refinement that he wants here. And the reason he wants the Supreme Court to review the matter is to reduce tension between the what he perceives as tension between some traditional OLC opinions. And Jack used to run OLC. So he has a, a very uh, deep interest and knowledge in, in this area reduce tension between what he perceives as the DC circuits approach to this and OLC's traditional approach. And he's very careful to say he doesn't think that would help Trump that he thinks under either standard uh, Trump doesn't get the immunity that he's looking for. So if you're a justice trying to help out Trump here, uh, Jack's path is not the one you're going to have to look at. You're going to have to look at something much more radical unless you're simply trying to eat up time. Uh Jeff asks what would happen if a congressional representative put forth a bill declaring Trump disqualified and it passed. So, Gerard, that's an inter- I've I've gotten the opposite question. What if they tried to relieve the quali- disqualification and it failed? But yeah, what if you had a simple majority saying he's disqualified? Is that implementing legislation?
2: Well, no, because they can't just directly disqualify someone they've got to have some ability to challenge it judicially so i mean i guess they could pass such a thing and then you could go to the courts and say they can't do that right and 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 probably that's that's correct that it's really left to a court to decide although in effect if the joint session of congress says look we're we're not going to count the electoral votes for you because we think you're disqualified that's kind of amounting to the same thing Uh, except that the uh, electoral count act has special procedures for how that happens. Right. It's not like passing an ordinary bill or or resolution.
0: All right. Jay asks, and uh, uh, Roger, I think, probably knows the answer to this question off the top of his head because he's a brief counter. In just raw numbers of amicus briefs, how did the number of briefs supporting Colorado compared with those supporting Trump?
3: I think there were seventy four. I think uh, our our colleague uh, Heyman Hahn, determined, and I I think it was uh, more for uh, the Trump than for the respondent. And then there were fourteen that took no uh, position. I, uh, Quinta,
4: uh, yeah, I don't I don't have it off the top of my head, but um, Anna Hickey has kindly put in the in the chat the link to our uh, roundup of, of briefs, which. Which is the, the tally that, that Roger is, is referencing. so you can take a look there.
3: And incidentally, at the Supreme Court today, you know when they have an argument, they have a, an official uh, summary of the argument that is provided by somebody at the ABA for each argument. And the one in the uh, today uh, references Heyman Hahn's uh, disqualification tracker.
0: Excellent. That's what you should again, this is a reminder always reference Lawfare content. You may talk about it when you're annoying people at dinner. Be the be that annoying person who says, you know, I read this article in Lawfare and it linked to a disqualification tracker in Lawfare. Um there it is. Um all right. So the great Genevieve de la Ferra has some questions um and we're going to go through them. The most of these are for Gerard, but as the rest of you have thoughts, just jump in. What did y'all make of uh, Samuel Alito's hand wringing about different states reaching different individual conclusions about disqualification under Section Three? Doesn't the court routinely uh, deal with similar issues when they handle circuit splits? It seemed to me a distinction without a difference. So, Gerard, do you want to defend? Justice Alito here, or, uh, or does Genevieve have a point?
2: Well, look, it's a concern, but I mean, there's a couple of things you could say about it. I mean, one is if they laid down some guidelines for how states are supposed to do this, that would reduce the number of disagreements that you'd have. Second, Congress might well respond with a statute that says, "Okay, this isn't working that well or it's not the best way. So let's have a national process. I mean, allowing the states to do it doesn't preclude Congress from coming in and saying, no, we actually think we should do it in a national single procedure. Look, I understand that they may not want to have to do that. Right. I mean, it's not it would be not easy, but you know, that's not necessarily a reason to say there's a constitutional rule against it, right? To say, we don't want this work or we don't want this job. So, I mean, I think it's a valid concern, but the question is, is it then lead to the conclusion that it is unconstitutional, right? For states to do this. And I think that that's the part where they didn't really explain that or offer a convincing answer for that.
0: Genevieve also asks, do you believe, based on the oral argument today and the seeming pursuit of a judicial off-ramp, that the court is more likely to let the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals' opinion on immunity stand on its own? Seems like they want to avoid political hot potatoes. So there's been a lot of speculation about the relationship between these two cases, do you see any relationship or are these just two hot potatoes that happen to land in their laps in more or less the same time does resolving one in trump's favor create space to you know stick your thumb in the eye on the other one or is or is it just nine people who are unaccountable and unaccountable people are unaccountable
2: well i, I mean I don't know how much of a relationship it has. The only thing that occurred to me is that the argument that Trump was not an officer of the United States, right, and that's why Section 3 doesn't apply to him, is awfully hard to sort of square with the same time saying, yeah, but he's not above the law when it comes to being prosecuted criminally, that those don't quite go together. So maybe that. The the fact that that criminal case was out there and that question was out there would make them less likely to want to go with the officer of the United States argument. And they, I mean, don't seem to be all that interested in that argument today. I mean, one or two of them asked questions about it, but they didn't seem to want to use that as the reason.
3: I really think this is Chief Justice Roberts's, you know, thing. I, I think he would love to give one bone to this side and one bone to that side and do it. In very close proximity and time frame,
0: all right, we have a question that gives rise to a one word answer from Josh. Is it even possible to prosecute Trump under eighteen usc twenty three eighty three before the election? Answer No, not if you mean a completed prosecution. I can't tell if this question is meant seriously or sardonically. Um so let's uh, I'm going to direct it at Quinta. Uh, Rick asks, did the originalist slash textualist arguments never even come up?
4: Uh, Yeah, so they they came up at at great length. Uh, Justice Gorsuch in particular got kind of snippy about them. There's, you know, in in terms of pulling apart the distinction between officer of and officer under, there was a a nice little moment where Justice Kagan uh, asked if the the court would be able to get to that officer stuff uh, later on. So they, they did address those issues. Um, as we've been discussing, there was a use of history um, throughout the argument and and looking at uh, Griffin's case as an example of uh, how uh, the original public meaning of, of Section 3, um, I will say, I, I think it's fair to say that we all agree that the originalism wasn't particularly good originalism um, insofar as that the history was a bit off, <laughs> um, but it certainly did feature.
0: All right. A few more questions, and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, Nathan asks, can someone please highlight the mechanisms by which the Solicitor General and perhaps even the special counsel on behalf of the United States could have participated in the case of Trump v. Anderson. Does anyone see it might have been better for the case, if not for their own cases, if they actually had filed an amicus and requested time for oral argument? Is it too late for them to do so or for the court to reach out? So yes, it is too late. The case is submitted. But I have wondered about this myself. uh, And I'm curious, Gerard, for your thoughts on it. Normally, when the Supreme Court uh, considers a question, much less a question of first impression about the meaning of a provision of the Constitution with significant implications for the presidency, uh, the S.G. is in the conversation. And in this case, um, they treated it as a dispute between some Colorado voters and a candidate with no input either from the S.G., I think the special counsel is less important, but no input from the justice department institutionally. Isn't that weird?
2: Yes and no. I mean, you can understand why the solicitor general might not want to get involved because it would be a case involving her superior's uh, likely opponent. Right. I mean, I, I was never quite, I'm not quite clear on the etiquette of these things. Like if the Supreme court asks, the solicitor general to get involved, is that something that can be declined or is it just- It,
0: it can be, but it never is. When right. the Supreme Court requests the views of the SG, the SG provides a brief.
2: Right. So so maybe this is kind of like they didn't ask because they didn't want to put the SG in a position of, well, in an uncomfortable position. Uh, so that's a possibility. And maybe they thought it best just to, to not- go there yeah so i can see why maybe the request wasn't made or not sure what would have happened if the request was made
0: yeah i i gotta say i think the request should have been made and i think the sg's office should have weighed in about it it's a a question of the meaning of the federal constitution as pertains to the united states presidency uh, it seems like the institution of the United States should have something to say about it. And I don't deeply care if it puts them in an uncomfortable position. By the way, that bridge, that ship sailed when they indicted the man. Um and so like i I actually agree with the premise of the question. I would have wanted to hear from the Justice Department, and I think the Justice Department would have, weighed a lot of different factors that none of the individual uh, litigants here have particular interests in. So we're going to do one more question. This is from the estimable anonymous attendee who asks a lot of good questions. I'm not sure whether this is one person or numerous people, Um, uh, but this question has come up a lot of times and you know, we just happen to have Gerard here today, and it's great when you have somebody who knows the answer to a question like this. I haven't heard much, discussion of the clause of Section 3 that talks about providing aid and comfort to insurrection. It seems to me that this is pretty much a no-brainer given Trump's lack of action and the we love you people video afterwards. I'm not a lawyer, so there may be some reason fairly obvious that I'm unaware of, but I would really appreciate hearing about why aid and comfort hasn't seemed to play a role in this whole thing. So, yes, anonymous attendee, there is actually a reason. And it came up at oral argument today. uh, But Gerard can explain it far better than I can. Uh, Why does the poor aid and comfort language never get any aid or comfort?
2: Right. So it's because the aid and comfort language is best read as applying only to foreign enemies not domestic insurrectionists. and foreign enemies basically means people we are in a declared war with. So the reason for that is because it's basically drawing from the language of the treason clause in the original constitution. so uh, and and it's worth pointing out that, you know, it's possible also that it was meant to apply only to people prosecuted for treason. That's another theory because at the time Jefferson Davis was being, prosecuted for, for that crime. But whichever one's, one of these you pick, the answer is it wouldn't apply to an insurrectionist domestically.
0: All right. We are going to leave it there, folks. Roger Parloff, Gerard Maglioka, Anna Bauer, Quinta Jurassic. thank you all for joining us today. You're all great Americans, and we will see you soon. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Hey, folks, you can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. And in one go, two birds, one stone, you'll also be able to pose questions to our panel and become part of our conversation, joining the Zoom webinars on which we record Trump trials and tribulations and other live events. These benefits are available only to our supporters. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya. Your audio engineer. This episode was the great Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music is as always performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.